Okay, I, I I fully expect just just to give you guys a heads up. Next week, next Sunday is uh, what's traditionally recognized as Reformation Sunday. I, I like doing. I like taking a Sunday out of the year and focusing on some historical theology issues. And so my my plan right now is next week to deal with the biblical teaching of perseverance, what Jesus is dealing with here, and to try to deal with uh, two equal errors. The Roman Catholic error is, of course, that you can lose your salvation, that you can fall out of a state of grace. The word mortal sin, the mortal, mortis, death, sins that kill grace. So in, in Catholic theology, there are sins that can kill, like, like flatline kill, saving grace in you, mortal sins. Um, and so in, in the Catholic understanding, you are moving throughout your life between states of grace, um, largely by the mediation of the sacraments um, and good works, and then at times committing mortal sins, moving to states of non-grace. And so Roman Catholicism has no teaching of, 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 of security. That's part of the reason. You might, you might be able to have some security today because you've taken the sacrament, you've gone to confession, but there's no promise about tomorrow and what you might do then. That's one error, is a complete denial of assurance. I think the Western church's error is in response to that, is this sort of um, once saved, always saved, to the exclusion of any testing, confirmation, or need to persevere. So what I mean by that is this notion that one, probably the worst proponent of this is, is a guy from Dallas, Zane Hodges, who has said, I think I can quote this, one moment of true faith in your life, you're good. You could go join a cult. You could go. You could deny Jesus and become an atheist. You're you're good. It's this. And but what they're dealing with the tension is because they want rightly they want to give assurance. They don't know how to this side. And I'll stop quoting Zane Hodges. I'll, I, had, I had talked with somebody a couple of years ago at Camp Apennus. One of your counselors, Daniel, and I were talking with um, who is struggling with this. How, how can conditions, like you must persevere to the end, coexist with assurance? And so for one, so the Catholics cut off assurance. They hold on to the conditions. To their credit, they recognize that you must persevere. You, whoever does these, like to their credit, they recognize people that, that walk like unbelievers are likely unbelievers. The other side is to completely divorce the fruit you bear, the confirmation you give from anything else. And so it's like, look, the, 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 uh, I, I know some of you might be stereotyping, but I've met these people. So it's not a complete stereotype. I, I wrote my name in my Bible as June 13th, 1987. And anytime I question, if I know the Lord, I look there and, and that will trump they will use that to trump anything. Frequently, it's also parents and family members about their loved ones. It's, I know my grandson meant that prayer. They prayed when they were in Iwana. And it doesn't matter. Their, their grandson's now practicing Buddhism. They know that when they were in Iwana, they meant it. And so that sort of once saved, always saved, this used to that end. And there's part truth to once saved, always saved. I do believe that. But divorced from any sort of uh, confirmation. And, and what I think the reformers got right is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, that we must keep believing, but that God keeps us believing, that he began a good work and you will be faithful to complete it. That we, one of my favorite songs we sing, he will hold me fast. Um, and so I must continue in faith, but my confidence is not that I'll grip my teeth and 
I'll make it to the end. But no, the same shepherd who's come up on, hit me upside the head with his crook a couple times, will continue to do so till I get home uh, to safety. That's my confidence. So that's what we're going to deal with next week. So I know just as a milieu of what we've brought up, but okay, questions from last Sunday or this Sunday, because I know these these are, are challenging topics. So uh, take it away. Or if everyone just is totally on the same page, we can just break early or something or but I'll be very surprised if that's where we're at. So, okay. Who's got a question? I do. Oh, Eric. So, um, MacArthur talks a lot about lordship salvation. Yes, sir. And hear that we, uh, uh, we are to yoke ourselves in Jesus' word, right? And then today we talk about... Um, Freedom, and we say freedom from sin, freedom, you will be free, you will be free, but how do we reconcile the two when uh, freedom from sin is restrictive of our actions on this earth and our heart's desire, Um, and sometimes it really doesn't feel like freedom to bear the burden? Let's go to Romans 6. It was written in the notes, and we didn't have time to go there, but in in (laughs) every... Freedom does not mean what we often may think it means. Biblically, your freedom to be a slave to righteousness. Sort of like when Jesus calls us friends, everyone likes to make the big deal of friendship, and then he qualifies friends. Slaves get told what to do. I tell you what to do, and I tell you why, and that makes us friends. But it's still a friendship where you do what I say, right? So in the same sense, freedom is freedom to follow your to follow a new set of desires. There's no... There's no, there's no you and I will never be free moral agents in the sense of having unanchored desires, where either our desires are to do our Father's will or our desires are to do our Father's will. <laughs> There's no situation where I, I don't have any father. I am in no family. I'm a maverick free agent. And so in Romans chapter 6, let me get there, um, starting in 15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know, if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? This is exactly what Jesus taught. Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. That's the freedom. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? But the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, yes, we're free, but the qualified, we're now free to obey God. We're free to pursue and obey righteousness. You're not just free to, hey, find, find, find. 
To quote Bob Dylan when he went through his Jesus phase, we all got to serve somebody. And there's never a point, we were made as worshipers. There's never a point where you don't have a functional God. There's never a point where you don't have somebody you're serving. And so the question is, are you free to serve God, or are you still a slave to, to serve your desires? And you're set free from serving your desires to be able to, to serve God. But no, there's never a point where nobody's on the throne of your heart, where you're not serving somebody. Is, are you asking more than that, or is that? Okay, okay. All right. Other questions? I'm very surprised if there aren't more questions. Oh, Renee. Okay, so 834 um, in ESV. Is that what you preach out of? Yes, yes, ma'am. It said um, practice sin. Mine says commit sin, which was more confusing. So I like to practice sin. Yes. No, no, that is what's helpful. In fact, the first John, um, the first Bible I used was New King James. And it just says anyone who sins. Um, so the construction in Greek, there's a uh, Greek, there's a Greek verb poieo. Um, we get the word poem from, and it can mean something like work, craftsman, produce, and so that the construction you can just take Greek takes all these nouns and turns them into verbs. So you can take sin and just turn it into a verb, and Greek does that. Here it's work practice sin. So think of it like what's your profession? I sin, I work and craft sin. Okay, then you're not a child of God. And what's tricky is even the children of God do sin, right? So it, 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 Jesus has the advantage here of seeing their hearts, and whereas we ought not to come to such quick conclusions, given a sufficient amount of evidence, we could come to the same conclusions about ourselves or others that Jesus does. But you really have to look at what, what, in, into whose image are you being molded? Are you looking more and more like your father in heaven or your father below? You will be conformed to the image of what you worship. And so there can be some ambiguity. Are you a, are you a servant of righteousness who struggles with sin? Are you a servant of sin who assuages your conscience with acts of, of religion? There can be some ambiguity there. Fair enough. Um, but yeah, the Greek construction is clear. Workers, practicers, practitioners, craftsmen of sin. That's the idea. So what defines you? And, and I get that there can be some gray, like, I'm not sure. Um, th- that is the case. So it's not as simple as, do you sin? Well, then you're not a Christian. That would be an impossible standard. And so, no, I think the ESV rightly brings out the, the verbal aspect that the, the New King James, at least that I was used to when I first became a believer, uh, said it more ambiguously. And I remember First John being a lot, making a lot more sense my first year in Greek, and then getting the ESV as one of the translations that bring out some of those, those verbal aspects. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's not as simple as do you sin? What, are you a person who primarily sins? <laughs> Were you a person striving to obey God? Devoted. Which one are you devoted to? Yeah, which one? Which, so I like the idea of whose image are you becoming more? Because you will, you will become what you worship. You will become like that. I mean, that's the whole language of Jesus saying that when Jesus says they see but don't see, they have ears but don't hear, he's referencing the idols they worship. Because the idols, of course, have eyes but don't see, have ears but don't. And the, and the logic is you're idolaters and you're, the stamp of your God is on you. Your God is blind, but looks like he can see, and so are you. Your God is deaf and looks like he can hear, and so are you. So the notion that you will become conformed to the image of your God is the real point. So, so I would say, who are you looking more and more like? 
um, whose image are you being molded into, which is sort of the language of uh, Romans 8.12, right? Um, is it 8? No, it's Romans 12.1, sorry. Yeah, Romans 12.1. Um, yeah, go there real fast. I appeal to you, brothers, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. By testing, you may discern what is the will of God, is good and acceptable and perfect. So the assumption is you will naturally be conformed to the image of this world. And so don't be conformed to the image of this world. Be conformed, be transformed in the image of Christ. And so, of course, you will never complete that in this life. But over, over enough time, there should be a clear movement in one direction or the other. And we want to be cautious not to come to hasty conclusions. Jesus knows their hearts. We need a much bigger period of data and information before we can make... So we ought not to go out and as boldly as Jesus, you're of your father the devil, unless we had a sufficient amount of evidence conclusive evidence. But the principle is there and it's given to us. I mean, we're told we will know them. So to some extent, it is right to humbly, cautiously, not not, not looking down your nose, not self-righteously. But no, we ought, we ought to. We're told how to recognize the children of God and how to recognize false teachers and how to recognize um, sons of the devil. Um, and, and yes, I'm well aware that there are people who have done that um, presumptuously, wickedly, just to shame, just to feel better, just to crush other people, and that's awful. The solution isn't, then don't do that. Do it righteously. Do it rightly. Do it when it's appropriate. Do it uh, as commanded in my scripture. I think we tend to be much more polarizing, moving the other way. You know, um, where I just, I wouldn't want to say anything about anybody, you know, and uh, that's not right either. So does that... Help at all? Okay. All right. Oh, Katie. So this goes back to last week a little bit, but um, so at the end of 30, it says many believed in him, and then Jesus is talking to the Jews who had believed in him, so that same group of people. And so, and I might just be misunderstanding, but thinking that we were talking to a new group of believers, but now truly we're seeing that they they aren't. Yes. No. Let me let me be clear. I think okay. So there's a there's a there's a tension in John's gospel that I think is meant to be there. No gospel more emphatically teaches justification by faith alone. John begins and ends with declarations. Whoever this, These things have been written so they might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing have life in his name. And yet at least two times, and I think three times, John makes it clear, puts up some cognitive dissonance, that there is something John will call faith that isn't saving people. The first example is at the end of chapter 2. While Jesus was in Jerusalem, um, many believed in him, when they saw the signs that he was working, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, for he knew what was in man and needed no one to bear witness about man. That's a chapter after the exact same. So, so go to, let me, let me re- re-argue this, because I think, no, it's, 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 it's important. I'm arguing that John intentionally sets up this, well, wait a second, 
either he's a bad writer and he's contradicting himself or he's intentionally putting the, the, the cognitive dissonance in place. I think he's doing the latter. So John, compare John 1 with John 2. One twelve. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That is word for word what is said in 2.23. In other words, the way out of the the tension in 2.23 cannot be gotten around by saying they didn't believe in Jesus, they only believed in his name. It's word for word the same. So when John says in 2.23, when when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, we would expect something like, Jesus gave them the right to become children of God. So what says in response is meant to be striking. In fact, the Greek is even more striking. Literally, the, the verb to believe is used here. Jesus, on his part, did not believe himself to them. They believed in him, but he didn't believe himself. We don't speak that way in English. Believe yourself to somebody. And so it has the idea of entrust, but it's, it's a play on words. They pistuoed him. He did not pistuo himself to them. And then we're told why, because he, he knew what was in the heart of men. Now, I believe, and I argued back when I taught this, this paragraph sets up Nicodemus. They, they saw some signs, they believed something, and Nicodemus shows right up as, so this explains or introduces the Nicodemus encounter. And we read, there was a man of the Pharisees and Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Here's a man who believes some things about Jesus because he saw some signs while Jesus was in Jerusalem. And by the end of the Nicodemus encounter, we see Nicodemus, even though he's willing to believe Jesus is a rabbi, maybe even a prophet, by 3.11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you, plural, you all, do not believe. Receive our testimony. Sorry. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So no, no doubt in my mind, Nicodemus here is an unbeliever. Yet, in some sense, he believed something about Jesus. He saw the signs. So John puts this cognitive dissonance thing at the end of chapter 2, which I think is meant to make us go, well, what? And then as we work through the Nicodemus encounter, okay, you're saying, John, there's, a, there's some sort of faith you can have in Jesus, some confidence that Jesus is somebody from God that's seen miracles that is not saving. There's something John can call faith that doesn't save. I think he's doing exactly the same thing in chapter 8. Um, so I, I, think, I think we're meant to scratch our head. Your only alternative is that John is a terrible writer. No, because in John 8, verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Say, pause, pronouns, a pronoun, he, him, they, always have an antecedent. And when, if, you're, if you're a good writer, the antecedent's obvious. If you're a bad writer, it gets confusing. Tell me what, the, one moment, tell me the antecedents as we move forward, or the pronouns. So Jesus said, to the Jews who had believed in him. If you, when you say something to someone and you say you to someone, who's the you referencing? So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you, Jews who had believed in me, abide in my word, you, Jews who had believed in him, 
are truly my disciples, and you, Jews who had believed in them, will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him. Who's they? Unless he's a terrible writer, they is the Jews who had believed in him. That's the way pronouns work. Um, you will, they said to him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been a slave to anyone. How is it that you say you'll be free? Jesus answered them. Who's he talking to? So the, your only alternative is somehow they and them has switched its referent, which is just terrible writing. Or he's talking to the Jews who had believed him. That's what I've been arguing. I've been arguing. And, and absolutely, this is meant to make a scratch or I go, whoa, what? And I think by the end of this, because Jesus is talking with them trying to kill him, when in, in this chapter, they haven't tried to kill him yet. Now they're going to at the end of the chapter. This very group of people are going to pick up stones in 59 to kill him. And Jesus, knowing all men and knowing their hearts, can see what's in them, and he names it. And that's, that's what Jesus has that we wouldn't have in this situation. But we, the reader, see them do that very thing by the end of this chapter. They hate what he says, and they want to kill him. And there's something that you can call faith in Jesus that still hates his word and would nail him to the cross. That's what I have to come to the conclusion of, is that John is saying, so, so to put it as simply as I can, or I'll quote Carson. Carson's my favorite commenter, so I quote Carson a lot on this one. There's faith. In John's gospel, there's faith and there's faith, which means we want to be very careful about what do we mean by faith. And this is James. The demons believe and tremble. There's something you can call faith that demons do, right? So we're saved by faith, but not everything you can call faith saves. That's, that's what I think John is teaching and saying. Um, Matthew is next. Yes, no, maybe. Lee, Lee's first. Lee, ladies first. Lee, then Matthew. Well, I'm <clears throat> looking on at that verse in uh, John, the first chapter. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed, and I wonder that received seems to take like believing into that extra step. Like, oh, I see it, I believe it, but receiving is like making it yours. So I, I, to me, that's where I see the yeah, line. So, so the grammatical concept's apposition. You're renaming. To those who believed him, that is those who believed in his name. So he's renaming the group of those who received him are then renamed in apposition those who believed in him. All I'm saying is, John, and that's part of why John's got so many rich metaphors for faith. I, mean, I argued this last week. Faith is like eating bread. Faith is like quenching thirst. Faith is like following after. Faith is like coming to. Faith is like um, looking to a serpent on a pole. Faith is, I mean, I think this is part of the reason John gives us so many other metaphors, that Jesus speaks in these metaphors. Faith is like asking for a gift, John 4, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who was speaking to you, you'd ask him and he'd give you living water to drink. So I think that's part of the reason John gives us so many biblical metaphors to speak of faith is to develop, deepen our understanding of what faith means. Um, and I think today, more than ever, we need that clarity because part, part of the consequence, part of the, the consequence of modern day relativism is that people are used to holding contradictory ideas in their head. They, they, far, I would say people today are far more comfortable with claiming to hold contradictory ideas than they would have been you know, 80 years ago. That would be my impression. Um, so people can believe all sorts of contradictory things. And you know, it's okay. It's my truth. It's your truth. And I've tried to sit down and be like, my truth, like, my truth says you're wrong. 
It's my truth. My truth is you're wrong. I'm sorry. You know, and like, no, that's just your truth. I'm like, no, but my truth's making a claim bigger than me. My truth's claiming something about you too. Um, and, and so I think today more than ever, we can use that same clarity on what, what faith is. Um, but that's, yeah, that's, yes. So those who believed in his name are those who received him, are those who eat, are those who drink, are those who follow, are those who come to kind him. Kind of partake instead of just standing on the yeah. side and looking at what's yeah, yeah, going yeah. on. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the, the, the point is, it, if you're looking for this to come down to wording, it's not going to be. There's something you can call believing in his name that in one twelve is equated with salvation, and in 2.23 isn't, you know, um, and in eight, believed in him. Yeah, it would be simple if we could just be like, oh, the wording is a little different. It's not that issue. John will show us as Jesus, as their words reveal their heart, is there any doubt by the end of this encounter, these people are not saved? <laughs> no, there's no doubt. Um, so maybe more problematic is in what sense did they believe? What did they believe? Um, and I, I, my guess would be something like this: This guy is a prophet. This guy is from God. This guy isn't who they said this, the bad guy they said he was. And th- my guess would be something like that. That's I think what Nicodemus believed. Hey, you're you're from God. Well, that means you're a prophet. You're, God sent you. Nicodemus believed that much. And so, in that sense, Nicodemus could represent the people who believed in Jesus when they saw the signs he was doing. But he, he didn't come to belief that Jesus was the Son of God, that Jesus was the sacrifice for sins or any of those things that we think are critical in the faith. But he, I think he was willing to confess Jesus as a rabbi and as a prophet or teacher come from God. And yet, by refusing to believe what Jesus says, when Jesus says, you aren't believing me, you're not really treating me like a prophet from God because you don't really believe what I'm saying, is what Jesus points out with Nicodemus. Matthew, sir. Goodness, hi. Hi. Um, oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> I was actually going to want one, make a comment on like the belief of demons, but for yeah. me, like looking at what the entirety of the new Testament, especially um, the parable where um, Lazarus and the rich man, where at mm. the end, Abraham says to the rich man mm. across the divide, like, no, go back and tell my brothers that like, this is all true. Everything's real. And he's like, yeah. no, they have the teachings of the prophets. Even if I came back and, told them like it'd make no difference and so what i kind of see here is like an illustration that faith is almost like a tripartite requirement you need to believe that this is god which is the faith that demons have you need to submit to that yeah and then you need to act on it like in james like you you need to have works that go along with your faith yeah and so we're seeing with the jews here is just the singular requirement of maybe recognition and even not necessarily the recognition that is required right no, th- yeah, the, uh, there's differing, if you go to different systematic theologies, different people break it into triparts or four parts. I think Calvin might have five, there's fiduciary. My simple definition that I would put it together, faith, saving faith, is confidence and belief such that you're willing to act upon it. You go to Hebrews 11, and every example, so in Hebrews 11, let's go to Hebrews 11. I'll, I'll, that's how I'd argue. Hebrews 11 is the chapter, I think, most defining and exemplifying faith. What is faith? Um, and so you get some sort of definitions of faith at the beginning of Hebrews 11. And then we get a number of examples in what has been called the hall of faith. So um, Hebrews 11.1, 1, 
Faith, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old were com- received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not visible, was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, though through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. But notice, by faith, Abel did something. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Nevertheless, now before he was taken up, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and he rewards those who seek him. Another element of faith is, I want a reward from God. I want, I want God's reward. That's The author of Hebrews is going to make it clear by the end of 11. That I, I want God's city. I want to be with God. The reward is God. Um, I would say this is the reward. But So faith is believing that God is and, and wanting his reward, wanting, wanting him, desiring him. The demons believe he exists. They don't want, they don't want his reward. They don't, they don't want him. Um, then we get without, okay, by faith Noah was warned by God concerning the events as yet unseen and reverent fear constructed the ark. So God said something. And Noah believed it. And how do we know Noah believed it? Because he spent 120 years building an ark. That's how we know we believe. In other words, the example isn't, it's never just trust me. Deep in their heart, they believed. The author of Hebrews will again and again point to us and say, let me show you their faith. Here's what they did. Let me show you their faith. Here's what they did. Um, So um, by faith, Abraham obeyed, verse 8. The, when he was called to go up to the place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That's the reward he was looking for. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, through one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland." If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would not have had they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. So part of what he's saying is by faith you can see what they valued. By faith you can see what they wanted. By faith you can see what reward they were seeking. And this is where um, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, who had, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it is said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Which is, which is what's interesting. Paul makes this point in Romans. We're told in chapter 15 that Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Now, he doesn't do anything there, so the reader has to take the narrator's word for it. The narrator, Moses, tells us, by, by faith, Abraham believed God. And then two chapters later, with the offering up of Isaac, we see it, and there's no question. So what you have to take on faith, pardon the pun, of the, no, the narrator just tells us Abraham believed. We're like, okay, I guess he believed. 
And then when he offers a Isaac, we're like, oh, no, no, he definitely believed, <laughs> right? And that's, that's the logic. You can see what they believe by what they do. Now, it's important to get the order first. You believe, then you act. You believe, then you act. Um, I think Joseph is striking for this in 22. Think of all the things Joseph did. What would you pick as his act of faith? What would you pick to, to where do you see in Joseph this type of faith exemplified? By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. Do you guys know what that's referencing? What event that's talking about? When Joseph was really old, he calls his people to him, his family to him, and he says, I know that God's going to raise, deliver you out of here in 400 years. When you do, you make sure you bring my bones with you and you bury them in the promised land. Why is that so significant? Why, why is that Joseph's big moment of faith? Why not Joseph by faith fled Potiphar's wife? But Joseph by faith interpreted the dream. Because, I think, Joseph's people had completely rejected him. They sold him into slavery. They faked his death. And the Egyptians, after a rough start, eventually welcomed him. He was made the second in the land. He was given as his wife, the high priest of the son's daughter. Joseph had so taken on the customs and the, uh, the dress and the garb of the Egyptians, his brothers didn't recognize him. He was not a peculiar person like the Jewish were supposed to be. I think the author of Hebrews is suggesting the big crisis of faith for Joseph is ultimately, at the end of the day, whose lot, who, which tribe are you in, Joseph? And there's a really strong argument. I'm an Egyptian. The Egyptians have honored me. The Egyptians have taken care of me. The, the Egyptians are my people. And Joseph, at the end of his life, says, no, I'm, I'm an Israelite, and I want the promises of God, and I want my first step in the resurrection to be in the promised land. So you take my bones and you bury them in the land God promised Abraham because that's what I want. That's the city I'm looking for. And that's why the author of Hebrews points to that as the hallmark of his faith, which is, I think, remarkable. Um, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called a son. In every instance, people are responding to what God has said by doing things. That's, I think, the unifying factor is God said something, people believed it, and we see they believed it by what they did. So the, the connection of logic is always... So my, my definition of faith, the faith the Bible is calling for, is confidence, belief, such that you're willing to act. You're right. Breaking into three categories of mental assent, acknowledgement of the will, being able to put it into action, and they got Latin terms for it all, and I've forgotten them. Um, I, no, you're absolutely right. But to, to, to make it simple for my kids, if you're willing to attempt to act upon it, you believe it. That's, that's what I'd say. Um, that's, which gets back to you always live out your belief system in the moment. Always, 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 always. Um, which, which is why sin and unbelief are so tied together, because sin is lived out unbelief. I mean, th think it through, right? Um, my, my wife um, and I get in an argument, which in and of itself isn't a bad thing if we're speaking peacefully, we disagree. But I actually start to use sharp, harsh words. Why? Because I don't believe what God says. God says I'm to love her as Christ loved the church. God says I'm to bear with her as a weaker vessel. God says sir, I would rather be wronged. And in that moment, my heart says, you shouldn't put up with that. That's stupid. You're a piece of your mind. And I believe that lie. And I act upon that lie, 
which is why repentance then leads to confession. Confession is agreeing with God. So, so the, the, the English etym- etymology is word origins. The, the English etymology of confess is identical to the Greek. Con, with, fest, to say, to say with. Greek, homo, logos, homologamen, to say the same, to say the same. And so the, the idea is, when I sin, I disagreed with God. When I Think of it in the Garden with Eve. Don't eat from that tree, it's bad. Eve says, and Adam say, no, it's good. They disagree with God. And we know they didn't believe God because we know they ate. Confession is, you were right, that was in fact wrong. I shouldn't have done that. So when I repent of speaking to my wife in anger, and then I confess, I am now back where I can agree with God and what he has said. Your Lord, you said I should speak kindly. You said my words should be healing. I was wrong, you were right. That's confession. Now I'm back agreeing with God. So when you look at it in that sense, I think you can see the unbelief that's always the root of sin. I'm not believing, which means then it's not like I, it's not as simple as do you believe? At times, hopefully more than not, right? But throughout my day, my faith is waxing and waning. My unbelief is waxing and waning throughout my day. I'm forever thankful to the man in the Gospels who cries out, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief to give me a category for that. It's not as simple as a light switch. Yes, I believe. Well, certain things and other things I don't believe at times, and I'm constantly repenting and confessing and having to agree with God on things and constantly, oh, I disagree with you for a second there and get back in line with what, what God says is right to do. But yes, that's you're saying what you define faith as. Faith is what you, you, you live out your beliefs. That, that'd be my biggest emphasis is you're always living out your belief system. And, and, and part of the reason I hammer that so much is I had deceived myself back in the 90s. I believe these things, and I don't act upon any of them. And it took a Mormon at a party to, to point that out to me. And it was devastating. No, no, I got, I got in a, a debate because I, I was a fun guy. I like to... <laughs> I like to just deconstruct things, and so I like to just... I was just a miserable um, person. And I went, I was at my friend's party, and my friend and his buddy were both talking about basically money and success in business is everything. And, and at the time, I was seeing, my father had been a very successful attorney who became a quadriplegic, and I was seeing how, how vacuous and how empty all of that security was, and how in a moment it could be taken away, and how in the right context, how meaningless it was. And so I waited my time and waited in and started trying to dismantle their money's everything. When about two in the morning, Dan, one of the guys, turns to me and he says, okay, Jeremy, well then what is? And I sort of sputtered out, uh, I guess, figuring out how to get right with God and doing that, which he says, well, then why aren't you doing that? And I was just gobsmacked. Like, I'm used to asking the questions here. No, that echoed in my head for days. It was the first time I was forced to see all these, because I, I could have recited to you an Orthodox gospel as early back as I can reach. As far back as my memory goes, me having an Orthodox understanding of the gospel is there. I'm sure I learned it at some point. My memories don't go back that far. I went to a parochial Christian school for my earliest grades, and so I can't get behind that knowledge. And my, my understanding, Jesus was the Son of God, Son of Man, fully God, fully man, died on a cross, substitutionary atonement, rose again on the third day. Faith in him as a forgiveness of our sins is the basis of our salvation. 
And that's why I view God's letting my leash out as a kindness, even though it involved me um, just um, like the prodigal son eating from the pig's trough. Because it, it helped me see I'm not okay. I'm not all right. Um, and it was at that summer and at that party where that was the beginning of the shattering of my false religion. And then that got me to go to the Bible to read it. And then I read Matthew 7 and I read John, 1 John 2 and I was done. I was just done. <laughs> I was like, uh-oh. Oh, dude. Uh, dude, those were just devastating. Many, I mean, I just remember... I remember reading, many will say, Lord, Lord, and just realizing, these people, if this is the appeals line on the day of judgment, well, here's a couple of things from the Matthew 7. People who have false religion and are self-deceived are genuinely deceived. These people are surprised. I don't think they're bluffing. I don't think they're faking their incredulity. They really thought they were going to heaven. They really thought they, Jesus was their Lord. Lord, Lord, did we not... And then they list ministry they did. These are people doing street evangelism. These are people working in Awana. These are people teaching Sunday school classes, right? Did we not do all these things in your name? And that was just terrifying. And, and, and for me, I wasn't even doing ministry. I was like, you know, just living like a profligate. And so if these people are ahead of me in the appealist line and they're not making the cut, I was in trouble, <laughs> I feel like all of us are kind of in trouble if that's the appeals line. Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, but that's where, no, so he says, you workers of lawlessness, which gets back to the practitioner. Your occupation was you were crafting sin. You were being molded in that image. Of course, I never knew you. Um, so I, it's, it's not as simple as do you sin. It's, it's who's your God? Whose image are you being made in the likeness of? Um, let, me, let me go to go to Second Peter. The passage that gave me the first... Um, sense of assurance of salvation was uh, 2 Peter 1. Because 1 John, especially in the King James and the New King James, is brutal. Because it really does look like if you sin, you know, you're a son of the devil. And if you do righteousness, you're a son of God. And like, I do both. <laughs> Help. Um, and I think the ESV's translation is, is easier to, to, to get. But for 2 Peter 1 was really the first passage that really um, helped give me some sense of this. I remember actually reading this. I was on a, a bus going to Logan Airport um, to go on a missions trip to, to Kiev in the Ukraine. And uh, I was reading a book by John MacArthur, I think, on assurance or something. Anyway, so here's the, here's the, here's, so Peter's going to make this argument. Here's what God has done for you. In light of what God has done for you, here's how you ought to respond. So, Verse 3 of chapter 1, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. So God has given you everything you need. He has granted to you all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and great promises, so that through them you can become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. God has given you everything you need to become more like him. That'd be my summary. He's given you promises. He's given you his word. He's given you all the equipment you need to become more like him, to share in his divine nature. Not to become God, like Mormonism, but you can become more Christ-like. He's given you everything you need to do that. Therefore, verse 5, for this very reason... 
make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Seven qualities. And here's the key verse. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, it's not about a bar that you have to meet. It's about a direction you have to be moving in. What are you growing in? Are these qualities increasing or not? Or decreasing? For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Verse 10, Therefore, my brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. How do I confirm my calling and election? By growing. That's how I confirm my calling and election. And so this was the first passage that really I could say, okay, I see some growth. I see change in my life. Okay. Because no, the, King, the new King James of 1 John is tough. I mean, 1 John's still tough, but the, the, the ESV and some, some of the um, more other translations get some of the verbal aspects out that the new King James was not making clear. But this was the first passage. I'm like, okay, I get it. It, it clicked. Um, and so, yeah, Second Peter 1 for me is a huge passage. It's, it's about growth. It, it's not about here's a bar and you got to be at a righteousness level 6.5 and you're only at righteousness level 6.4, so sorry. What are you growing in? And, and that you will be growing. You will be conformed to somebody's image. Whose image are you being conformed to? So, so does that... Did that help at all? Or? No, that's okay. great. I love that. Thank you. Okay, cool. I was just trying to offer some clarification. You offered me a whole bunch of other stuff that I really liked. Also really loved the, I, the point about Joseph and Hebrews you mentioned, because that is not a connection I'd ever made, and I love it. Thank you. Well, praise God. I tend to ramble, so yeah, that happens. And Daniel's not here to shut me up, so. <laughs> um, any, any other? We got five minutes. We got any? Yeah, okay. Jordan. Jordan, right? Okay, Jordan. So it's about the growth. Yeah. It's about the direction you're moving. Yeah. So the people who stand before God one day and say, Lord, Lord, I did all these things, that wasn't them growing? That was just them doing self-righteous works? Or I'm, I'm just trying to... Let's go to Matthew 7. Yeah. Sure, no, let's go to Matthew 7. I had somebody right after the service asking about that too. Um, Matthew 7. So he says three things to define these people, or three or four things to define these people. Starting in 721, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, so the first statement is simply, um, so the, the earliest Christian confession, Jesus is Lord, right? That, that Romans 10, right? So with, your mouth, with your heart you believe, with your mouth you confess, Jesus is Lord. A mere orthodox confession is insufficient. Not everyone who has an orthodox confession is going to go to heaven. That's, that'd be the first point, right? But, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So doing the will of God is the next qualifier. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. And I do think it's interesting that he lists ministry not fun. I mean, yes, ministry done rightly is an act of obedience and sanctifying, but he lists only those things that are, you, everything he lists 
is externally religious in nature. I also think he's got one very particular person in mind who's going to cast out demons and work miracles in his name and go to hell, and his name is Judas. I, I think in the back of Jesus' mind, Judas is right there. I mean, that, that's terrifying. Judas went out and worked miracles. Jesus, Judas was with the 70 who went out and cast out demons, and even the demons are subject to us. Um, and Ju- Judas is the son of perdition. Jesus says, I lost none except the son of perdition that the scriptures might be fulfilled. So on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And so that's true of them, but we know what's not true of them is they didn't do the will of my Father in heaven because we know not everyone says Lord, Lord, but the one. So there's a way that you can cast out demons, work miracles, and prophesy that doesn't include doing the will of your Father in heaven. And we get in 23, I'll declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So even as they were casting out demons, performing miracles, and prophesying, they were also crafting, working lawlessness. So I think then the picture you get is somebody who, on Sunday, in, our, in our context, teaches Wednesday night in Moana, teaches a Sunday school, or preaches a sermon on Sunday morning, and yet are habitually crafting, working wickedness and sin. They're hypocrites. They are, they are whitewashed tombs that we get. They're not doing the will of their Father in heaven. They are workers of lawlessness. So is it possible to be very active in ministry and yet be a worker of lawlessness and not doing the will of your Father? Yeah, it is. That's terrifying, which means we should never evaluate our sanctification by our ministry. I should never be getting my assurance from the good sermon I preached. Balaam's donkey did a nice job too, um, right? <laughs> um, the high priest Caiaphas spoke better than he knew. No, 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 no. It's going to be basic bread and butter things like how, how am I doing with my kids and my wife and my mother and my neighbor? Basic righteousness, not, you know, like I, I did a really, that was a really good third point. Yeah, I'm growing in Christ. No, I should look at how I'm growing in Christ by like, did I do dishes yesterday? <laughs> you know, um, so yet, so not mistaking my ministry for my sanctification. But, but but putting all that together in Matthew seven, all those things have to be true of these people. They didn't do the will of their father. They did work unrighteousness, and yet they cast out demons, did miracles, and prophesied in his name. Well, Judas certainly fits that bill, um, and I'm sure there are others as well. So Ben, you want to bring us home? So. Um uh the the simple call that Jesus makes after John's arrested and Jesus goes into Galilee and he's preaching in Mark chapter 1 is to repent of your sin. Yeah. So and and that's what um first John gets into as well. Yeah. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just yeah. to forgive and yeah. to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So a good I guess test for our own faith to see if we are in faith or not. What do we do with our sin? Amen. A- no, amen. In fact, this will bring us all the way back to Eric. <laughs> so Eric mentioned Lordship Salvation. The I, I, I am staunchly on the Lordship camp, just like I'm staunchly in the Calvinistic camp. I generally don't use the terms because they're frequently misunderstood. Um, I am firmly of the camp that faith in Jesus desires to obey Jesus. There's nothing we can call faith that doesn't want and seek and intend to obey Jesus. That, which is why I think the New Testament can at times, the gospel call 
is one of three things in the New Testament. It's believe, repent and believe, or sometimes just repent. Um, in Acts, when Peter preaches at Pentecost, there's no call to faith. There's only a call to repentance because rightly understood, repentance and faith are flip sides of the same coin. You're turning. Faith emphasizes turning to. Faith and repentance emphasizes turning from. And so faith is a turning from your sin to Christ. And John's gospel doesn't have the word repent in it once. And so some, some folks who don't um, think repentance is rightly understood as part of the gospel call have pointed out, if that's so important, why isn't it in John's gospel? And part of what I'm trying to point out is it's all over the place in John's gospel. The word repent isn't there. But isn't it obvious these people who believed don't like it when the, their sins are exposed? We're not slaves of anyone. What, what, is, what is offending them? The implication that they're sinners and they're stuck sinning. They don't like that. That's why they don't like him. And so I think all over John's gospel is the truth that, that genuine faith deals with sin. Amen. You want to see what you believe. How do you deal with your sin? Do you, do, you, do you justify it and excuse it and hide it and cover it up and avoid it? Or do you confess it and deal with it? And if you're, if you're confessing your sin and dealing with your sin and trying to fight your sin, even if you're fighting weakly and, and impotently, praise God. That's what his children do. Um, if you're excusing, avoiding, and, and minimizing and hiding it, watch out. And with that, we'll call it a day. What'd you get? What? Or the or the climb filters? I know. Okay, grab one of them. Twelve, twelve, or twelve, fifteen, twelve thirty, twelve fifteen. Yeah, somewhere in there. Yeah, bye. Is that Jared Brown coming towards me? I think so. Or is it Nathan? It's not Nathan. Jared. Okay. What's up, Jared? I'll be ready for your job, man. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah. Just yeah, go for it. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. How's the uh, attendance of the choir gone? Nice. You got your simplified disc yet? It was supposed to be at the warehouse the end of this past week. I got eight emails from them this morning about the status, so I'm, I'm hoping it's okay. Email. Okay. 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 <laughs> so Excellent question. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you. Matthew 7 came up. <laughs> so, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. No, you're welcome. You're welcome. Cool.
When you get it, just get it to me. We'll do that. Thank you. Thank you.